Good morning. My name's Adam. I am director of 5th through 12th grade here at Lakeland, and I'm excited to be back for number two in the series. Now, last week, we set the stage for this current series in Lent called Walking in the Wilderness by discussing our own testing in the desert. And we said that the wilderness that we read about in the Bible and the wilderness that we experience in our own lives are both places of testing and places of noticing. And that to understand both of these truths, we must stay attuned to the grand declaration of God to his people Israel in Deuteronomy 7, I love you because I love you. This morning, we will zoom into a specific story about the Israelites and their difficult trudge through the desert. Now, there are several times in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples will say to him, Teacher, this is a hard word. Meaning, this is a lesson or story that challenges us to the core of our very beings. Our scripture passage for this morning is a hard word. But my prayer and hope for us is that we will not shrink back from facing a hard word this morning. We would embrace the difficulty of the desert, the harshness of the wilderness, as a place where we are prepared to hear a true word from God, especially if it is challenging. This is the good, hard work of Lent, a season of a kind of joy and wonder that makes one serious to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis. We know where we're coming from, from last week. God loves us because he loves us. We know where we are headed, the joy and wonder of Easter. Let's honor this time between and focus all the more seriously this morning on this incredibly important lesson in the wilderness of Lent. Amen? So the problem with these Israelites in the desert seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them out into the wilderness, and now gives them the Ten Commandments, his law. Guidance for them to live into his hopes for them as a people. The people answer God, yes, yes, we will do all that you say. We swear it. Moses then goes back to the mountain to talk again with God, and the Israelites begin doing what? This is the first shocking thing about what we read this morning. The outrageous nature of their actions. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone through the entire list of the Ten Commandments. Some of them are a little bit more challenging than others, I think. But... The Israelites don't even make it past the very first commandment. And I got to tell you, this isn't really the one I would have expected somebody to get tripped up on. I mean, all they had to do was not make a statue and bow down and worship to it. I don't really feel like God's asking for too much here. Do you? 
as humans, we were made to worship. It's in our DNA. It's in our very purpose for creation. And everyone, everyone worships something. Martin Luther points out that there seems to be a really good reason why the very first commandment that God gave to his people was about idolatry. Because according to Luther, none of us can break any of the other commandments without also breaking the first. Now we could challenge Luther on this point. We could maybe try to find some exceptions to his rule. But in my own personal experience, I have come to find his general point to be really really insightful. Why do we break promises or live selfishly or fail to love well? Why do we sometimes lie or cheat or steal? Why do we constantly desire things that do not belong to us? Because we're weak and sinful people? Well, sure, but we got to dig a little bit deeper than that this morning. The truth is we would not do any of those things if there weren't something in our immediate surroundings that were more important in that moment to us than God. Human approval, reputation, power, financial stability, And whatever is more important to us than God in any given moment has become our functional God. It becomes what we think about, dream about, put all our time and energy and attention on. It becomes what we worship. It becomes our idol. Now, sometimes this means taking absurd things that have little or no value and treating them as though they were immensely important. But more often, it means taking something that is good, that is a gift from God, and elevating it to a place in our lives it was never intended to be. Okay. But if we all do this to some extent, then what's the issue How could this cause problems in our lives? We'll spend the rest of our morning answering that question with three important truths. Worshiping false idols will lead us astray. Worshiping idols will lead us to despair. And worshiping idols will lead us to miss out. First, worshiping false idols will lead us astray. How? By pursuing things that are not of God, not of his will, not of his kingdom, not of his glorious purpose and plan for us as his children. Let's go back to our passage for this morning in Exodus 32. Remember that the Israelites had made this statue of a cow and were worshiping it and claiming, shockingly, that this thing had led them up out of Egypt Regardless of what they thought they were doing, the Israelites found themselves bowing down to a cow. 
Do you remember middle school health class when we were all told, you are what you eat? Well, this morning, we're going to flip that into a Christian adage. You are what you worship. Psalm 115 tells us this. It says, those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Now, I had never made this connection before in this particular chapter, but I find it incredibly intriguing. In verse 9, God points out that the people have become stiff-necked and stubborn, terms we might very well use to describe cattle. Verse 25 says that Moses saw the people had broken loose. Definitely something you could say about cattle. And verse 34 tells us the people had to be physically led back to safety, like cattle being led to their pens or stalls. Now, the language being used here in Exodus 32 is not coincidental. It is telling us quite clearly, you bow down to cattle, you're going to act like cattle. You are what you worship. And God's desire for us is not to behave like cattle. God did not create us to be stiff-necked or stupid. God did not create us to break loose and be out of control. God did not create us to be led around like some kind of animal. He created us with a spark, with intelligence, with a heart and soul in his very own image. We were created to love God and love people in an incredibly beautiful and meaningful way. We are meant to be God's agents, his emissaries, more than conquerors, the carriers of God's special message to the entire rest of the world. Doesn't that sound more exciting and more compelling than picturing ourselves lowing around like cattle in a field with no direction or purpose? Point number two for this morning. Worshiping false idols will lead us to despair. Why? Because our idols will fail us. Psalm 106 draws us to again consider the absurd nature of what the people worshipped in the desert. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. This puts it into perspective The Israelites traded the power and glory of one mighty and loving enough to save them, rescue them out of Egypt. One who could rebuke the Red Sea and cause it to dry up enough that they could pass through on completely dry land. And for what? For the image of an animal that saunters around eating grass. What about our own idols? We don't actually worship golden calves, right? But our idols are just as worthless for the purposes we use them for. For us to find our value 
for us to realize our worthiness, for us to discover our purpose. Our idols are just as dumb, just as worthless as the statue of a calf. There's an incredible story about the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings that demonstrates really well the futility of idol worship. So King Ahab was king of Israel during this time. And he had allowed the worship of the god Baal to become the primary religious activity of the nation. Elijah wants to show the people just how worthless this false god really is. So he gathers together a large group of Baal-worshiping prophets for a public demonstration. And Elijah says, I want you to prepare a bull as a burnt offering. So take the bull, lay it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And I'll do the same thing with another bull. Then we will both pray to our God and we will see whose God can spark a fire on the offering. Mm, Intriguing. Let's pick up in verse 26. And they, meaning the prophets of Baal, took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal that from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Our false gods can do nothing for us. They cannot answer us. They cannot help us. They cannot establish or affirm our identity. They have no power, no influence, no say at all. Whatever it is that we desire, whatever it is that we think will fulfill us, money, fame, success, Comfort, romantic love, sexuality, moral rightness, theological rightness. Those things will never make us whole. We will find ourselves needing more and more and more of them just to get back to the same level of satisfaction. In Isaiah chapter 41, God echoes this incredible story of Elijah's duel with the prophets of Baal by challenging worthless idols to a duel himself. I absolutely love this passage and only partially because I grew up watching professional wrestling. I think you'll see what I mean. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. 
Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Put your idols up against me and let's see who really knows something. Let's see who really knows the beginning and the end. Let's see who can tell us of things yet to come. Let's see who really creates meaning in this world. False gods, I'm calling you out to a steel cage match, declares the Lord. And God, of course, is going to win this matchup every single time. Because just as God tells us, these false gods, these idols are nothing. They do nothing. Their works are less than nothing. Now to take this a step further, not only can our idols do nothing for us, they end up working against us. If we look to some created thing for our meaning, hope, or happiness, it will eventually fail to deliver. It will break our hearts. It will hold us captive. The person who seeks power is controlled by the quest for more and more of it. The person who seeks praise or acceptance is controlled by the people who either do or don't give it. Every idol in your life will create a different set of fears or a different set of traps for you. But they all have one thing in common. They make for terrible, unmerciful masters. They don't care about us. They can't care about us. Idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they are demanding everything and giving nothing. If you put everything into becoming a successful athlete, what happens when you get injured or cut from the team? If you put everything into your career, what happens when you don't get the promotion you were expecting? If you put everything into the health and happiness of your family, what happens when your son or daughter gets really sick or gets into serious trouble? In one of his books, Christian author Henry Nouwen retells a story from ancient India. Four brothers decided to each master a special ability. 
I have mastered an ability, declared the first, by which I can take the bone of a creature and add flesh to it. Wow, said the second. That's incredible that you can do that because if I have the bone and flesh of an animal, I can add skin and hair to it. Are you kidding me, said the third? Because if you guys can do all of that, guess what I can do? I can rebuild the whole rest of the creature. I can make a whole animal. And the fourth said, show me a lifeless, breathless creature and I will give it life. I have learned how to do this. So the four brothers go off on a journey, on an adventure to to prove what they can do. So they go and look for uh, the bone of a creature. They finally find one in the jungle. And the first brother, just as he said, adds flesh to it. The second brother adds the skin and the hair. The third brother constructs the entire creature. And the fourth brother gives it life. And then, shaking its mane, the lion stood up, killed the four brothers, and vanished into the jungle. This is what our idols do to us. We believe that they will help us. We believe they will save us. We believe they will give us identity and fulfillment and a glorious future, but they can't and they won't. And if we put all of our hopes and dreams onto them, they will eventually crush us. Point number three, our final And most important point this morning. Worshiping false idols will cause us to miss out. Miss out on what? On the most incredible, rejuvenating, life-giving thing that has ever existed in the world. The healing, saving love of God. In Isaiah chapter 42 God sets up the perfect comparison between those worthless idols that he just got done mocking in chapter 41 and something so much better. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What a perfect comparison. In Isaiah 41 We have God saying, behold, these worthless idols that can do nothing and are nothing. Versus in Isaiah 42, God says, behold, my servant. He will not grow faint or weary. He has come to establish justice, truth, and righteousness, and the way the world is supposed to be. 
Our deliverer is not like our idols, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not mute or powerless. He is the eternal word, unlimited in power. Before the universe was even created, he was a king who leads by sacrifice, who rules not through the oppression and suffering of others, but by his own suffering. Jesus has destroyed the power of sin. He has reversed even death, and he will come again to finish his work of setting the entire universe aright. This is the true object of our worship. So, if we realize this, then what can we do about it? I want us to leave today with two practical solutions to the problem of our idols in the desert. We must identify our idols, and we must replace our idols. How do we identify our idols? Well, we're going to have to ask ourselves some hard questions. We have to be more aware of ourselves and the posture of our hearts. What do we most often dream about or fixate on in our free time? What do we spend our money on? What do we put our trust and belief in for our worth, strength, and value? How do we respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes? What drives us to intense frustration, anger, or despair? What in our lives is too important to us that we must have at all costs? The answer to any or all of those questions is a pretty good place to start in uncovering our idols. But then what? How do we go about actually getting rid of these idols? Does anyone else have problems with weeds in your yard? If so, and if you are like me and have spent a considerable amount of time and energy and money trying to get rid of them, then you probably already know the devil's favorite plant known as the wild violet. Wild violets are the absolute worst You can try to pull one up, but they've got these horizontal root systems, right, that grow side to side and all over the yard, underground. So even if you try to pull one up with its roots, you're very unlikely to be able to get the entire system. And if you leave even some of the roots intact, you will have wild violets popping up all over your yard. Our idols are the same way. We can repent that we have idols. We can vow to utilize pure willpower to overcome them. But in my experience, it's just not quite enough. So what can we do? We have to get down to the root of the problem. And we may have to turn over all the soil of our hearts We must replace our idols with something better and more real. Jesus must become more beautiful to our imaginations, more attractive to our hearts, more compelling to our minds. 
how do we do this? Our hearts are constantly being competed for each and every day by everything we see and experience around us. But we can put Christ in a better position, a better position to where his voice will be more easily heard, to speak more often, more loudly, and more convincingly to our hearts. Over the next two weeks, Pastor Dan is going to give us some tools that will help us do this better. Spending time with Christ in word and prayer, taking up spiritual disciplines and routines that will help us consistently worship and adore the true God and will help us stay anchored to the truth that God loves us because he loves us. And he loves us so much that he would do most anything to keep us close to him, even to the point of dying on a cross. I have to agree with Martin Luther that the heart of human sin is idolatry. Our attempts to ascribe to ourselves or to another person or to an experience or to a place or even to a school of thought what God alone possesses and deserves, glory and honor. This is the essence of the delusion of the human condition. We all want to be the center of the universe. We want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated. We want to be glorified. And the kicker, the absolute rub to this entire silly delusion is that we are constantly being offered all of it. All of it by God himself. And we actually turn it down. We refuse it. And instead, we go and we sit at the foot of a statue of a calf. And we say, will you love me? At the end of Exodus 32, our scripture passage for this morning, something incredible happens. After attempting to stop the Israelite shenanigans, Moses returns to speak to God again on the mountain. Let's pick up in verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. We find Moses, though brought to extreme frustration and anguish out here in the desert throughout this entire ordeal, now being brought very near to God's character. God's will and God's own heart. The offer of self-sacrificial 
love. One that God does not accept here on Moses' part. But one that God would later give himself on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is our deliverer. This is our Savior. This is our God. The only thing that is worth our worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for a hard word, but a good word and a true word. We pray this morning that you would help us to look inside ourselves. You would give us eyes to see those things that trip us up, those things that distract us from you. And we pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to step forward toward you so that we might remove them from our lives, that we might take away their importance and the power that they have over us and instead put ourselves in the hands of a God, the only thing in the universe that consistently and truly loves us and is for us. Thank you for this incredible, incredible love that is beyond our measure, beyond our ability to even contemplate. And we thank you that you have done all of this through the person of Jesus Christ. It is in his holy name that we pray, and we all said, amen.